Hello and welcome to Transition Teeth, the podcast dedicated to demystifying the world of healthcare transition and activation planning. I'm your host, Kelly Guzman, the president and CEO of Yellow Brick Consulting. And today I'm honored and very excited to have Dr. Danielle McCarthy joining us today. So Dr. Danielle McCarthy, welcome to our podcast. Um, Can you please provide our listeners with a brief background about you? Sure. Um, so I've been an RN for 22 years now and um, love what I do. I am currently a nursing director of ambulatory surgery units, uh, several of them, a few of them here in San Diego County. And um, my background has been kind of a variety. So I uh, started out in the cardiac, went over into labor and delivery, did um, maternal child health for quite some time. A recovery room there, and then found my way into operating rooms, um, and have kind of stuck over the past few years. So, um, been in the leadership role, oh gosh, probably for 12 years or so, and um, absolutely love what I do. So, um, been in transition management or um, project specialist um, roles since 2012. Well, wonderful. That's where I met you, and we'll talk about that a little bit later um, as we get through. So today we are drinking a Buddha's blend tea, and this is some green tea that has jasmine pearls. It has some peach flavor and white hibiscus uh, blossoms. So it smells delicious, and I took a sip earlier. It was, it's um, yummy, and you mentioned the, the peach flavor, so mm-hmm. very good. I do like the peach. So listeners, you know, go ahead and grab a cup and we're going to talk transition with Danielle. So, so Danielle, I met you when um, you were actually, you know, I want to start off by talking about your first job in healthcare. So what led you to a career in healthcare to begin with? Uh, so what led me to it is that when I was young, um, my mom found herself in the hospital. Um, I was about 10 and um she had a brain hemorrhage, uh, subarachnoid bleed, unknown origin. Um, and I can vividly remember walking into the ICU and vividly remember how the physician spoke with us um, and then how the nurse provided a little bit of support additional after that. And I kind of just thought um, in that month long that she was in the ICU and then the month long recovery at home, um, I really enjoyed that uh, kind of healthcare in an odd way of um, providing care and seeing somebody get better go from um, a tragic event and being told that she might not make it to um, the healing process. And so, um, and I was the first one to go to college out of my, my family. <laughs> um, my parents met on a commune. <laughs> so, Congratulations. Um, yeah, so made it, I did my associates first and then went on to my bachelor's um, and just felt the support the whole way through. My first job was in a cardiac unit, as I had kind of said earlier, um, and I actually got that job. I was working as a CNA, a registry CNA, while I was had my nursing license and trying to look for jobs. Um, and I was working with a nurse and he grabbed me and he was like, wait, you're an RN? And I said, yeah, it's passed my boards. I'm just waiting, putting my application out. He took me down the hall to his manager and sat me in her office and I got hired on the spot. So um, it was fantastic. And um, I don't regret any minute of being in cardiac and loved every every little bit of it. I love your story. Um, you're the poster child for every position along the way from CNA, going through associates, bachelor's, master's, 
um, which is when I met you, and then um, getting your doctorate. So congratulations. That is not an easy milestone. Uh, I have not done it personally, but I have a huge admiration for uh, the grit and the commitment that it takes. So, so cheers to you for that. So, um, so speaking of when we met, so I met you when we were opening up a Greenfield Hospital. And for those listeners who don't know what a Greenfield Hospital is, um, it is one of the most difficult challenges I think that anybody will ever have in their life because you have to, you are opening up a brand new facility that has never been opened before. So it's usually in a community where there wasn't an, uh, a hospital, which was the case with you, and um, had to hire all brand new staff. So you need to um, do all of the team building, the recruiting, the setup, and getting ready to take care of patients um, with people who you've never met before. So um, kind of tell me about your experience and how you uh, had that that job and um, you know what that was like. Okay, that was very interesting. So um, did not know what I was up for when I took on that position. And, and um, <clears throat> so um, I was employee number 11 um, at that facility and it was myself and another director were the, um, the lowest levels. Um, and I remember day one pulling up to a office which I was not used to, you know, I'm used to going to the hospital, I'm used to being in scrubs, and, and um, even if I showed up a business attire and change into scrubs, I'm spending my day in scrubs, and so being in an office setting, and then just getting plans, and saying, here's your department, um, there's no walls to it yet, there's no nothing, and we need to figure out what we're, how we're going to put the, how we're going to start functioning in here, um, <clears throat> so the director next to me, and, and myself and, and her, we just kind of started going through the process of um, looking at plans and trying to figure out our way through um, this hospital. And as it was getting built, it was kind of things would come up. Um, hey, we need physicians. Let's go recruit physicians. I go with the CEO, we go recruit physicians. Um, and every step along the way, she would say, well, this, we're going to go speak with a urologist. Okay, well, then urology, we're going to bring urology in. That's going to cost another 200 grand, you know, so it was kind of just trying to figure out um, aligning yourself and, and getting resources on board. So finding the vendors that would support you, finding staff that would support you. <clears throat> um, I, I want to say that staffing was the hardest part for us. Um, it's, I feel like that's, I mean, I know we'll probably talk about it a little bit later, but one of the very common things that I see. No one wants to put it in the transition budget. Um, and it just becomes this huge piece towards the end when you really need staff, you really, now you've planned everything and then how can you um, make it all work, make it all happen. Um, and, and so it, it was a great learning opportunity and I absolutely loved every moment of it. Um, and, and thank God I met you <laughs> when we did. It was a little, little late in the game um, compared to when we now, you know, knowing transition planning and how we do things um, way late in the game for us. So. Well, um, it was fabulous to meet you there and lots of lessons learned. So, so there's workflow um, and, and you mentioned this, like, so we do the workflow planning very early on to get the staff prepared and you know you didn't have a staff to do that so how how did you do the planning 
um, for the workflow when you were like, you find out you're doing urology, you find out you're doing ortho. I mean, they're very different specialties. So how did you plan your workflow? Uh, so as every new specialty would come up, so first we started internal, right? So inside of our department. So we'd start like in the operating room. Um, how do we work function inside that room first? Then it's how do we function in our department? Um, then how am I getting a patient from the pre-op space into the operating room? And what's the workflow there? What is, it, what is the, the back and forth? Um, it was myself uh, and two techs really that kind of put together. but. Um, <laughs> um, and then where, and then you have to think about, so that's just people, right? People movement. Then you have to think about instrument movement and how am I getting an instrument from SPD into my operating room? Then how am I getting it back out of the operating room? How am I getting the supplies into my room? Who's doing that process? How am I carrying it? Is it being wheeled, carried? Um, what carts do I purchase? So um, I just think a, a lot of it started making sense when you could kind of walk that space. And for me, it was taking those designs and those plans very early on and just kind of putting myself in that space and, and walking it and living it and breathing it. And then once the walls went up, it was kind of like, oh, you know, I, I, I know this, I've been here. Um, so as far as workflow process, it was fairly easy for me to kind of create that workflow with the few, like I said, that reaching out to the right resources and talking to the right people. Um, having a tech was super important because I'm obviously the nurse in the room. I know what my workflow is, but getting that tech um, brain and then getting an anesthesiologist on board and getting a surgeon on board. So, so um, a lot, a lot has changed. You know, so that's 2012, 10 years ago, right? And um, at the time, you know, I feel like the the ORs and the interventional spaces are really like the cutting edge. They have some of the first technology, some of the first integration and stuff. So how, what have you seen that's changed over the last 10 years? And then what do you think um, some changes are gonna be for the future? Have you, do you have any thoughts on that? I do. So um, obviously all the technology, the, the newest 4K integration, integration is the most important, right? So 10 years ago, it was kind of like the newest, that was the newest thing out. Now it's even going even further where it's almost a 4K. You can almost see like 3D, um, you know, uh, when they're inside. So it's laparoscopic wow. cases are so vividly clear. Um, it's much better. The lighting is different too. So a lot of times I'm seeing different lighting and the way that the lighting actually impacts how the physician sees different, different organs, um, blood flow, different things. So that's been really neat to learn. Um, also, just the, the way of keeping things off of the floor, not needing to bring towers in, which is something we used to do all the time. So more integration and smaller pieces of equipment on the booms. So booms are a big one. Also now uh, having the um, hybrid rooms. So a lot of hybrid suites uh, where they can do all the cases. CT hybrid suite is, is amazing. Those are fun to be in the cath lab hybrid suites where they can do any of the cardiac space. That's been fun to see and challenging. So the hybrid space <laughs> itself is still very strange because you have your, um, your cardiothoracic surgeons very much want to hold on to their piece and the cardiac interventional guys still want to hold on to their piece. So it's kind of that in the middle and walking that fine line. And I think until we get um, the newer surgeons and the newer physicians out there that have been used to this going through med school, they'll start to get it and it'll start to catch on. And that'll probably be a lot of the space, a lot of hybrid space. 
That's interesting because because um, you're right. I remember when you know people were like, "Have you ever done this?" And I remember the very first one we did, and then it was like every or every organization had one. And I think some in speaking with people, they talk about how the proceduralists, you know, in the cath lab, you know, they didn't really have a red line because you went in and you're putting you know um, caps and things like that. So and you're not opening up a body and having that total sterile field. So teaching people to work behind a red line um, has been a challenge, certainly. Um, definitely sharing that space. So what advice do you have? Because we still have that and we're working with it right now. What advice do you have for somebody who is um, going to be going behind the red line for the first time and then getting people to work together in that space? Yeah, that is a very unique challenge. Um, and that will continue to come up, right? As, as new towers get built or um, as the seismic retro whatever, you know, earthquake stuff as we get fixed, we're going to start seeing that a whole lot more. Um, and every new build is that way. So first you have to get over the initial, you, you have to kind of bring in the, the cath lab people and the interventional radiologists, because um, that's who it is, right? It's cardiac cath and interventional radiology coming behind those red lines. Um, very important. I think it's a great move. Uh, they do a lot of stuff thoroughly. So I think it's a great move. It's getting them engaged early on with the operating room team, right? To see that they're kind, they're kind of one team. They want to remain very differentiated, um, and that's okay, right? Two different things, two different spaces. They function a little bit different, but really getting those two teams engaged early on to understand what is our workflow going to be? How do we take clean and dirty instruments? How do we get supplies in our department? Um, they're very used to since behind or outside the red line, it's a little more lenient with, with boxes and with things that can be stored in this space. Um, control rooms typically aren't, they're totally like a nurse's station. So you can have a drink back there or whatever you might want. That's no longer a case behind red lines. Um, and then the biggest one is codes actually. So um, code blues, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they happen kind of frequently in um, cardiac cathodes. It's part of what happens. But it's now a little bit different because the operating room, we call codes internal since we have physicians there on, on with us. So we have an anesthesiologist right there. <clears throat> we have anyone that can intubate right there instead of calling a code. So a lot of times those are the conflicts that we see. Then it's working. The, the next piece is working in that pre and post-op space. Who's doing the work, right? Are we going to have our own area where we get to own it um, as cath lab and interventional or are we going to be one shared environment and then the pre-op nurses or the PACU nurses are going to be able to provide that care for these patients. So um, there's a lot of space sharing all of a sudden and it's really getting those two early on involved so you're not having separate workflows um, starting out. And, and speaking of um, pre and post, I think that's another one where we've seen, um, and I know that was one of the first, um, one of the first projects I had was merging pre-op, post-op, and, you know, kind of interim. And I feel like during the day, it just like you are segregated. And as the afternoon happens, like you're merging together. So um, what about, you know, having to merge? And I know we had called uh, one of the units the procedure and treatment unit, which nobody knew what that meant, which was pre-op and post-op for any of the procedure or OR spaces. But um, you know, at the end of the day, there is a pre-op that you need to do, like pre-admission before you get into the interventional phase, and then the recovery, whether it's phase one or phase two. So um, how about, you know, getting the, that staff to work together? Any 
insight to, you know, getting people to cross train or when does it work? When doesn't it work? Um, so I think the, the pre post tachy space is, is very, is very unique in exactly as you said. So the mornings are more pre op and obviously as you transition into the afternoon, you have a, a combination of, of pre and post and then you wind up with the post op towards the end of the day. Right. So it's important to have all of the staff be able to do all of those roles. Um, but they are very unique and special. So for me, starting out kind of just from experience, self-experience, um, I made sure to have all my nurses have the ability to rotate. Um, and you're going to have nurses that are more comfortable with pre-op, more comfortable with PACU. <clears throat> um, but I think it's really important to hire in so that they can do all of the, all of the space. Um, and I think it's great to have it designed as one big unit. I love when they're like that. I don't like when they're separated out because separated out makes you just really limited on what you can do. So when it can be kind of one big space, um, it's good. You can have that flex area and the flex space uh, and everyone can take call. It's just a, a lot easier. If you do have them separate, then you have to still have that little bit of flexibility of then does your pre-op, is your pre-op able to take care of your post-op patients? Right, so um, not necessarily pack you, but after your your phase two, so getting ready to go home, can can they take care of those ones, or can they take care of the moderate sedation? So there's a way to look at it, um, and there's a couple different ways to spin it, but um, it's really all about the culture you bring, right? It's bring, as you're hiring people in, and you're kind of creating mm -hmm. that culture. This is a culture we're establishing here, and we're going to all help each other out in whatever capacity that might be, and we're going to train you to that. Yeah, I think one. Uh, trend that or or worry that administrators and managers, you know, the directors of the areas have is like, well, are people going to quit when you open up this new because they were only pre or they were only post or they were only OR, they're only cuff lab, but now you've got this cross training going on. And, and I do think there's something to be said about like, here's your specialty and you love your specialty, but as it expands and kind of the um, margins aren't quite as clear and we start kind of stretching, it, it becomes more important. So um, it's, that's certainly something that we've seen that, uh, you know, you, we take into consideration, like how many people are going to leave? Um, and I know that there was some turnover even um, in new facilities and you talked about that earlier, like with staffing. So what um, kind of staffing strategies do you have or do you think about as you're opening up this new, so you talked about hiring for culture. So I think that's great when you're able to get that, that new team. But when you have an existing, but then you're adding on new, um, any thoughts on how to incorporate uh, new staff with your existing staff so that they all start to begin to function as a team, like if you're adding five, six ORs? Yeah. Um, so a lot of change management, right? <laughs> a lot of... Um, a lot of ex setting expectations. And um, I think when you do pull staff over and you are combining them with, with bringing in new staff, I think including the staff um, that maybe you want to emulate, the staff that are, are the culture that you expect, having them in the interview process and then also having some of the other staff as well, but um, having a majority of the staff that you, the culture you want to establish um, in the interview process. So they can interview for like-minded people <clears throat> is a great idea to have. Uh, so I, I do that. I include them a lot in, in the process, a lot in what do you think about this? Um, how do you think this is going to go? 
And if it's a hard no, you know, oh my gosh, no one's going to ever do that, then we're going to talk about it, right? Why? What are the barriers? Um, so just really involving the staff a whole lot along the way, I think is so important. And the earlier oh you can get those people in, the better. <laughs> yeah, definitely the, your first project, I think it was one of the hardest because I, I would, yeah, I completely agree that trying to find that balance of when to hire all of these magical unicorns that don't exist to all come on at the same time, be trained and be ready is just a monumental task. And it's very difficult to do. So um, I feel like, you know, since you, that was your first project, it seems like the rest of these are probably a little bit easier. Um, yeah. So any, any kind of common themes, because you have done so many projects that you've seen just across the board and lessons learned that you're like, why can't this ever get fixed? Or why is this always a problem? Um, the staffing obviously is, is the one and it's, um, not a why because it's very it's kind of clear right so nobody wants to budget for it early you don't want to bring stuff in too early and have them sitting around is, is how it's looked at right even though there's kind of stuff they can be doing um so that's a lot of times and i think it's underestimated how hard it is to get staff which is especially right now right here here and now we're seeing healthcare making a change um so right now it's even more evident and maybe getting people a bit, whether it be contracted or, or something along those lines. Uh, the other piece that I see a lot of pretty much every project um, is the IT component, right? So there's this IT component that you can't test until it goes live, yet mm -hmm. a lot of workflow is involved in it. So, you know, when, when we say, oh, no, it's going to be simple, the, the, patient's going to push this button on their TV and their meal is going to come and we're like, okay, let's test that. Or um, there's integration with, with this system and that system. And then when we go live or first patient day, oh no, that's not what we meant. There's no middleware for that. So we didn't buy that one piece of it. Um, and so workflow has to change. So that seems, that's pretty consistent. Every once in a while you hit a project when it's like, wow, that's spot on and it went really well. Um, but it's, 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 more times than not that it's um, we need to rethink that workflow. So a lot of times when I'm doing the like the dress rehearsals, I'll say, okay, so what if that doesn't work? What would be our backup plan? That's a great um, great segue to dress rehearsal. So you're one of our most experienced um, facilitators because you've done this on both sides and you've helped to facilitate. So when we go facilitate, we work with an organization and usually as a project specialist, we do an orientation for you and tell you about what the changes are, you know, what the space is gonna look like. So what do you do to prepare to go work with the facility and, you know, work with the team to get them through maybe perhaps, I mean, they might've only been in the space one or two times. So what are some strategies that you use as a facilitator to prepare yourself to, um, to work with the team in the new facility? Um, so really it's, especially if it's their first time. So there's, there's different, I take a different angle almost every time I, I go, right? So um, first dress rehearsal is definitely uh, allowing them to feel that space. So allowing them to, because um, the people that have been working on it and maybe have been working on that workflow uh, might be very few. And you might have a bunch of new people that maybe have not even heard of the workflow or they're not exactly sure. So 
more about um, high, I try to keep it very high, high level. And um, let's look at the space, let's walk the space, um, everyone see it. And then when they're excited about certain things or why would this be here, then we stop and we have those good conversations about it. So I let them really feel their space. And I also tell them, look right now, because it's never gonna look like this again, right? Even the next time you come around, <laughs> it's not gonna look the same. Um, my first one through, and sometimes even my second one, I tell them, uh, but when I come back, I want you to, you know, you said your supplies are gonna be in this location. Okay, put a tag there. We know you're not gonna have them, that's okay. But put something on that wall so that every time you come in the department, you see it and you can visually say, that's where, that's where that one piece is. Um, my typical analogy to everybody is that you have played baseball your whole life or you've watched baseball, right? We've all kind of at least seen baseball. We know I'm gonna hit the ball and I'm gonna run to first. I'm telling you hit the ball and run to, run to third. That, that's how confusing it is in, in the department. Um, and it's not that we, you don't know how to hit and not that you don't know how to play, but I'm changing the, changing the rules up on you a little bit and having you run to third base. So you have to stop and think for a minute of where your supplies are or where you're gonna take your patient, right? And we want our patients to trust us on day one. So the more they can get in there and the more they can just um, put posters up or stickies up is, is the ideal. And then on the third one, it's magic. <laughs> yeah, right? it's so great, right? I love I, I love uh, dress rehearsal. It's definitely one of our favorite activities because, you know, for us, we've usually been working with the facility for a year, a couple of years, and you get to see that workflow go live. And then um, it is always interesting to hear um, the different perspectives, but there certainly are themes about the first one we hear is like shock and awe, like, wow, this is, you know, you're doing those paths. And then the second one, they're like, oh, now we really, we need to like be serious because you're getting closer. And then the last one before we go live and then um, I do love go live date because you see everybody just working the way that they were supposed to and it just um, it's amazing how all of that just comes together so um, so from a skills perspective so you've been a manager you've been a project manager um, what type of skills do you think are the most important or critical skills that you need to be successful in your role as a uh, as a leader and a project manager. Yeah, I think they flow together very nicely. Um, and I think number one, communication and, and not just how I communicate, right? How others are communicating, how am I listening? Um, what am I taking in? How do other people learn or listen or do they communicate better via email or text or is it a, a vocal thing? So. Um, I think communication is a big piece of it, uh, followed by self-awareness. I think having a self-awareness of your own weaknesses, your own strengths, um, self-awareness of how am I presenting myself today? What did I, what baggage did I bring with me today? Um, what do I need to leave at the door? How am I presenting to the team? Um, how are they feeling? So not only self-awareness, but just awareness of the, the situation and are they reading me correctly? Um, and then uh, empathy. I think those would be my top three things. I think uh, learned really, really well over the past two years um, to just really slow it down and, and empathize with the process and, and where they are and where I am, um, I think is a, is a big deal. I think we just need to make sure we check in with each other. And, um, you know, I did a lot of 
coaching on self-care and just taking care of yourself and taking care of your family and um, take the time you need. You know, we all felt like we needed to be in it 24 seven um, and you could just see burnout happening. So it's so important for me to say, just step away, step away. You need, you need a couple hours or you need a couple days, step away. I would rather have you for long-term than have you short. So um, just being aware. So not only self-aware of, of myself and what I, how I was carrying things or how I do carry things, um, how I do carry stress, huge part of transition planning, right? Um, it gets stressful and it builds and, and you feel like you need to be a constant, right? So right towards the end, typically of a project, they'll like cut off vacations, cut off time off. Everyone has to be here. This is go time. Um, and sometimes people, that stressor is not the best for them. They don't function at the highest level you, you, would, you would have them at if you could just have them step away for a little bit of time. Great advice and um, not easy to do. It's, you know, it sounds like simple stuff, but it definitely is, um, I think, hard and challenging when you are like that frontline manager and you've got staff, you've got patients, you have so many competing priorities um, to do. So, um, so in terms of, of time management, I think that's another skill um, that you're very good at. So you are a mom and I know that you are very active with your kids and their um, activities and they're very active and you're a manager and then you also, you know, recently got your doctorate degree. So how do you prioritize like getting all of those things done? And I know you love to run and exercise. So how, how do you manage it all? Oh, good question. <laughs> um, so I do, I bucket my time. I definitely do. Um, I'm a big on um, sleep and self, self-care, like I said. So um, I, I definitely bucket the time. And there are times where I just have to say no. Um, I have a hard time doing that. Um, and that's been something I, I work on um, <laughs> almost every annual eval. <laughs> every boss that I've had always is like, uh, you need to learn to say no. <laughs> and um, it's just, it's just me. Um, you know, I want to give and I want to get back to my community and I want to give to my family and I want to give to work. And um, so there's a certain point we have to learn, uh, you know, you don't have all the time in the world or I give myself a good deadline, right? So what's the deadline? And then I move them. I, I move my projects or myself stuff that I have to do. So if there's something pressing, that takes precedence and that, and that goes forward. So um, like while getting my doctorate, I just sat on the sidelines, like you said, with my kids, but, um, sat on the sidelines and just wrote my papers. So um, they understood it's, it's typically a family discussion if I do anything like that. Um, if I am taking on a new career or doing anything, it's typically a family discussion of here's how much time it's going to probably eat up. Um, and we're good with that. And, um, and then they all know that I have to have my time to um, exercise. <laughs> Otherwise, it stresses everybody out. So, um, yeah, I just bucket my priorities and bucket my time. That's what I do. I think... That's how I met you. Um, we, we were coming. I don't. I know exactly where we were, but you know, you were exercising. I was so excited to see you, and I'm like, "Oh, did you? Gotta hug you!" And you're like, "Get away! I'm sweaty." I was like, "Oh, <laughs> I was a sweaty mess." So excited, <laughs> <laughs> but it was awesome. So, um, so, so let me see. Um, you've been. You know, one of the questions is you've been. You've been on the client side. And you've been on the the consulting side. So any common themes that you see or skills that you need to take uh, on both sides? Or like, are you, would you approach your work very differently? I mean, for me, I know I was, I, it was a big wake up call to go from being 
the owner and the boss, you know, because I just said something and it happened. It's not that it happened, but you know, it was like, oh, well, these are our initiatives. We've got to go and do them. And then as a consultant, you really have to um, gingerly step and understand, like, I feel like a lot more and, and a hospital isn't a hospital isn't a hospital and an OR isn't an OR isn't an OR and what works here doesn't work there. So any kind of um, just things that you've seen being on one side versus the other? Um, yeah, I mean, you got to be patient with the process. So it was definitely different. Um, I mean, my, my project, as you know, was so different. I was just, by the time we got you guys on board, by the time I met you, we were just grateful to have you. Um, we had already done so much work kind of on our own and um, maybe not necessarily the right process, but we got there and then you kind of fine tuned it and refined it. Um, going through it with other people is definitely, it's a process of, we, we all know what it's gonna look like at the end. Um, we all know our job, right? I knew how to manage a, an operating room. I didn't know how to get there. So it's taking those little teeny pieces and being patient with that, I think was a, was a big deal. Um, being patient with the process and not rushing through the process. And I think that's um, something that we, that I help clients with for sure is just kind of I, I know that this seems tedious and I know that it seems crazy we're going over the same thing again we're asking the same thing again we're doing policies way early but there's a process and a, and a, and a place for it and that's why and so I, I think learning patience just being patient with the process is, is one of the biggest things. It's um, funny you mentioned the list because <clears throat> I know um, at the beginning of the project we have this task list that we go through and it is quite tedious, but it's all of the things that we know, like here's what's gonna have to happen. So it is a, a very long, extensive task list, but you know, we customize it based on each of the groups that we work with. And always it is like boring. Our team doesn't look forward to it. The hospital doesn't look forward to it. Um, but I have to tell you, like just in this last month, two people came and they're like, oh, I need you to come and I need you to bring your list because we don't have any lists and we're doing these projects and they're a hot mess. And we just need structure. So, you know, even if it's not my list, I think um, every anybody who has a list, if you're doing a project, you definitely you need a list with a, a timeline and a deadline, or it just doesn't happen. It like falls off of everybody's list. So, um, I thought it was funny you said that. Um, so, final question: Just looking back, and you know, you've had such a, an extensive career, and I think um, it's just so admirable how you've gone from CNA to doctor. That's just Super impressive. So any advice you would give to somebody um, who would like to follow a career path such as yours? Um, so again, be patient with yourself. I think that um, taking those steps and not jumping ahead was super important for me to be able to learn each role um, and to be able to kind of live in the moment. So I, I never intended to like when I got my master's, I just got it um, for myself, right? To prove to myself that I could do it. Doctorate, kind of same thing. I don't know where it's going to take me. Um, if it'll, you know, open up new avenues. I just didn't want to be limited in, in what I could do in case an opportunity came up. I would like to be able to um, have that degree in my back pocket and just be ready to go. Learning is, is always, so you don't have to have a degree to learn, but learning um constant knowledge. I just think you need to keep on moving forward. Um, 
I had no intention of ever being a administrative role. Um, I absolutely love bedside nursing. I love um, being with the patients. And it actually took me a little while. I had kind of mourned the loss of my bedside nursing when I um, took on the role that I'm currently in because I don't have, uh, I can't really be bedside um, as much. However, I can round on patients and I can round on my staff and I can make sure that everything's going good. So instead of touching my patients that I only would have touched that day, now I get to touch everybody, right? So now I have hundreds of patients every day instead of just five, right? Or eight or whatever it might've been that I would taken care of. So. Um, I think just feeling each of the, the places that you're in and is it the right place for you? As long as you're doing what you love to do, uh, then you're in the right spot, right? Doesn't matter. Don't, don't try the climb without um, making sure that's the right, right position and right place for you. I, I absolutely, my staff and my team, when they come to me and say, you know, I think I'm gonna go for this position. I'm like, excellent or I will talk them out of it if I don't think they're ready for it, or if I don't think they're quite, um, if it's a good move for them, right? So like, why are you doing that move? Let's talk about it. Um, but I always encourage everybody to take those leaps, um, you know, do something new, learn something new. Uh, it's, I think, think it's good. That's great advice. Um, I know there's definitely things how I had my whole career mapped out and it absolutely didn't turn out at all the way I had planned. So, um, you know, when somebody presents you with something, you're like, okay, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah. I'm go ahead and do that. Jump so, through those doors. Um, yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, thank you. So we're going to transition now. Uh, well, what did you think of the tea? Did you like, did you like the Buddha's blend? I liked it. Yeah, I do. I do like it. Like I said, I like that peach. I like that good peach after aftertone. Yummy. Okay, so we're gonna do mm -hmm. rapid fire questions. Just kind of okay. uh, whatever whatever answer you want to give, it's, it's your answer. So, cats or hey. dogs? Dogs. Uh, favorite city in the world? Oh man, that's not too rapid. I to visit New York. Ooh, it was fun. Um, sports. To live San Diego. Watching? <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, you live there, so. Um, so what, for sports, watching or participating? Oh gosh, probably participating if my body would, if my body will let me. <laughs> <laughs> you are super active. Yes, you are. Um, dark chocolate or milk chocolate? Dark. Uh, favorite book. Oh gosh, I don't even know. Um, I, I the last one that I read that I really meant a lot to me was The Shack. Oh, I loved that book. It's so good. I think there was a movie on it too. I don't know if I've seen it, but I think there's a movie. movie. Yeah. Um, how about your favorite TV show? Hmm, that changes a lot. Um, the last one was Ship's Creek. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that's funny. I I don't watch it, but I've heard it's really funny. Um, so would you go to the movies alone? Yeah. Now I would. You asked me that like five years ago. No. Now I would. Awesome. Um, would you rather be able to speak every language in the world or be able to talk to animals? Every language. I love that. How about your dream destination? Uh, 
The coast of Italy. Mm, I've never been. Um, and how about this one, scrub, scrub or circulate? Uh, scrub. I've never done either, so. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you so much for your time. And uh, if our listeners want to get in touch with you, uh, if you have a profile or information you can share, your contact. I do. I'm on LinkedIn, um, Danielle McCarthy, DNPRN. Um, I think uh, but I work at Kaiser, so I'm affiliated with Kaiser and um, Yellow Brick, obviously. Awesome. So thank you so much. And that'll do it for this episode of our transition fee. Uh, our next episode, we're going to be joined by another healthcare leader to chat over a couple of best practices pour over new insights and seek the next blend of transition and activation expertise. So we thank you for listening. And if you want to hear more conversations like this one, please subscribe to Transition Tea wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to see live videos of our recordings, you can follow us on our Yellow Brick YouTube uh, channel. So until next time, cheers and thank you very much. <laughs>